0: So let me read it, follow along if you've got a Bible in front of you. And let's listen to this. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then down to little sentence 11. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends." Well, that's God's word to us, um, and Steve's going to open that up for us. Junior Church, yes. who's playing the last song? Uh, oh, that's going to be fun, isn't it?
1: Yes. Okay, remote connection. Yeah, okay, I'll send somebody to get you. Uh, who's going to be my designated runner? Dan, well volunteered, that man. Good. Okay. Brilliant. Well, good morning, listen, my name's Steve. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I wonder, if you've got your Bible with you, and if you haven't, don't panic. If you've got your Bible with you, if you could turn to that little story that we had. What page number was it in the church Bibles, please? 738. 738 okay. Uh, now, I, I don't know whether you, you've spotted this or not. Maybe you haven't, but it's this is probably the funniest-looking party celebration that you've been to. Okay? Because generally speaking, unless you go to a designated pool party, there won't be a pool like that there. And if it is, it'll have bubbles. Uh, We ain't got the bubbles today. Okay? But whenever you have a party, there's usually a reason for it. There's a story behind it. Okay? So, uh, 2005, the end of May, if you were to go down to Liverpool City Centre, you would have found a monumental mess. Can anybody remember the story behind it? The monumental mess was because, well, hundreds of thousands of people gathered at the end of 2005 to celebrate a victory that had been long coming. Can anybody remember now, 2005? One night in Istanbul, okay? The story behind the party was a great victory by Liverpool. I actually went home at half time when we were 3-0 down. Uh, as in, left, left the TV set I thought, I've had enough of But what a great victory. In fact, I got uh, unrelated, I got an invite to a wedding earlier this week. It was come to our party. But of course, there was a story behind the party, wasn't there? And the story was that two people, oh, they met. And they came together and they liked one another. And they decided it would be a good idea to build a life together. And so they're going to get married and they wanted us to have a party and it's coming up. And I can't go, unfortunately, but I'm sure they're going to have a wonderful party. See, whenever there's a party and a celebration, there is a story behind it. And today, because we've got a party and a celebration, because we're celebrating four people being baptised, I need to tell you the story behind it. The thing is, is that you guys have got a story, whoever you are, too, haven't you? We've, we, we put ourselves together and we understand life through a series of set of answers that we've got that make up our story. Who am I? Where did I come from? What am I living for? What's important to me? Where am I trying to get to? What are all the problems that are in the way? And Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people in a moment who, well, they'd all got very different stories, all of them. And he wanted to help each and every one of them make sense of their story in the light of the ultimate big story. So this most famous of stories, Charles Dickens, who knew a little bit about telling stories, he called this the most famous short story ever told. He told this story of the prodigal son. Some of you remember it from Sunday school, don't you? Some of you are like, what's Sunday school? (laughs) I know we've got quite a range here today. So to help, I want us to see what Jesus' words are, and we're going to stick it up bit by bit on here, and we're just going to work through the story together. And through that, I'm hoping that two things will happen. Number one, you'll be able to figure out why this celebration. And number two, you'll be able to figure out what part and what place you're up to in the story. Because in some sense, when Jesus tells stories, it's because we all fit into it one way or another. So let's go to it. Let's have a look to start off with. So what we find is, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners... And eats with them and immediately can already pick up this beef there, can't you? Because the two most unlikely bunches of people were both there gathered in this crowd because they wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. And part of the reason they wanted to hear what Jesus was saying was because of what Jesus was doing. You see, I don't know how much you know about Jesus, but in that first century when he exploded onto the scene, nobody had a category for him. Here was the guy who made deaf people to be able to hear, blind people to be able to see, people who were clueless in life to better get direction. People who were dead, to better rise. Now, there's loads of powers I would like. Maybe that's it. The ability to better say, oh, you're dead, are you? Walk, rise, live. And he could do that. And all the crowds would watch. And that's why they all gathered, because they weren't stupid. You know, sometimes we think that anybody born before 1950 was just necessarily a little bit dim. You know, they'd been to funerals too, and they knew that dead people didn't rise. But when Jesus was there, things Happens. And so they gathered. But what a beef that was going on here because you've got this these group of people, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. They were the people who said, I'm going to write my own story for my life. I'm going to go and do it my way. And they were looked down upon by the elite, the religious elite. So you've got the people who were cripples, the people who were prostitutes, the people who were gangsters, the people who said, the system ain't working for me, I'm going to do it my own way. And then within that same crowd, and I wonder whether you can sense the tension, was the Pharisees, the religious elites. Now listen, I just want to be dead clear. They were better than you, and they were better than me. These were the people who, they dotted every I and crossed every T in their life. They were scrupulous on the last detail of upright living. You think you're a good parent. They were better. You think you're a good student. They were better. So how do you think these two groups felt about each other? You see, there's something within each one of us that is deeply insecure. And in those moments where we're lacking that sense of identity and that self-righteousness, what we'll do is we'll scan around and we'll try and find some poor Joe who is near us over whom we feel better than. You see, the tax collectors and sinners felt better than them because they're like, well, at least I don't try to be something I'm not. And the religious people and the elites, they look down on those and go, well, at least I'm better than you. Listen, if you judge your standards of rightness and acceptability on the basis of the nearest divvy to you, that's the wrong standard. And Jesus knew that story. And so there they all were. And he wanted to tell them a better story of how they could see themselves and how how they could know exactly who they are. So he starts in verse 11. Let's click it up. Here we go. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons... The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property amongst them. And some of you who are young are thinking, that sounds pretty cool, I like the idea of that. And some of you are going, oh, going, you, what a useless, no good son that guy was. You see, his basic message, this younger son, was simple. I don't want a relationship with you, Father. I just want your stuff. I don't want, don't want to know you. It's as if you are dead to me. In fact, I wish you would hurry up and die. I don't want to have to wait around for you to hurry up and die. So just sell some of your gear so I can go and live the life I want. I want your stuff, but not you. Now, in a Middle Eastern country where that was told, that was scandalous. In fact, some of you, you're sitting there going, yeah, that was cold. That was pretty cold. Because it was. It was a total dishonour to the Father. It was a total belittling of all the love and kindness. Could be Jesus calling. No? Okay. Never button the Lord Jesus. Uh, but hopefully it wasn't him, so we're okay. Don't worry, mate. Don't worry. Oh, Okay, was it? Okay. Probably message saying, listen carefully to Steve. Okay, let's carry on. And so it's just scandalous and wrong, wasn't it? And what's surprising here is, um, I, I should say this. The first group of people who'd lived at large, the tax collectors and sinners, they was—they they suddenly saw themselves in the story. They're like, oh yeah, that's me. They say, how's that then? Because their life script had been written saying thank you to God for all his stuff, but didn't want anything to do with him. You see, Jesus is telling a parable about ultimately how people relate to God. Now, what should surprise us here is exactly what happened. Verse 12, can you see it here? So he divided property between them. Now, I don't know about you, but he could have said, shut up, you little worm, go to your room, and beaten him. In fact, in first century culture, the the traditional culture, it was tradition that if you had a wayward son who was disrespectful, it was publicly acceptable, in fact, expected, that if he was disrespectful, you would drive him from the house with verbal and physical blows. Good old days, eh? Good old days. So that's exactly what he could have done. But he didn't. And I think we need to take warning from this. Because this is terrifying, actually. You see, God is prepared to allow people like you, people like me, and people like them to exhaust themselves running away from them, uh, running away from him. Now, I hope that terrifies you a little bit. Because the story is going to take us to a place where this guy's just not doing very good. We always will hunt for stuff. And it's as if God above looks down and says, you think that's going to work in your life better than me, the one who made you, loved you and created you? Do you really think that that ship is going to sail? Do you think, do you want to believe the lie that you are better off in your life without me? Because there's an awful lot of plausibility to that lie. We believe it every day because, well, there's music and there's dancing and there's fun things and there's exciting things. We're like a kid at Christmas, aren't we, so often? You see, when we're ripping off the paper of the presents and the goodies that we're getting, we forget who sent it to us. We don't even care, to be honest with you. It's just, is it good? And here, this father, I mean, what a daring parenting strategy this was. bit risky. He says, okay, go for it. Go run. See, I don't think I'd have the bottle to do that, and maybe I shouldn't do that if one of my six daughters decided to go on the run. But I suppose God is more wise than me. He's more gracious than me. And he's more powerful because he can bring about a happy ending even to a person's most tough and determined intention to run their own life into the ground. So let's see what happens. Verse 13 to 16. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. And there was an oh, I should stop there. He was whistling as he went. He cashed in the insurance bond. The dad had to sell some of the lands, which meant the dad was diminished. And he's, he's off to university or college or something like that, and he goes crazy. There he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, I don't know what you picture as wild living, but fill in the gaps. He was celebrity music video thing. You know, boats, parties, drink, drugs... Go-karts, drum, I don't know what it is. He just—he—he he was, he was trending on Instagram, baby. He was there. But after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. Now some of you know about chaos, don't you? And in case you don't, can I tell you there are two kinds of chaos that come at us in life. The first is sort of the inevitable chaos. It's just the hard things that come. We all get ill and sick one day. Sometimes somebody just leaves us. Sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult situation with our boss at work. Sometimes, sometimes the the economy just tanks. Sometimes the shadow of death comes near, and sooner or later we all die. That's that's, that's uninvited chaos. But we all, when we have in our moments of honesty, know as well there's a whole category of chaos that comes into our life that isn't. Uninvited and inevitable, it's invited because of some of the choices that we make, some of the things that we grab onto, some of the insistences that we make. So, I suppose if we, if one of those people who just decides to gossip or tell lies, and sooner or later the thing that comes back towards us is that people distance themselves and we become isolated. If we're one of those people who just love vain and shallow and empty things. Just swiping and looking and approving. Sooner or later, we're the last person to know this, but we become somebody who is just that little bit more shallow and empty and vain. So often, rebellion, if you like, what the Bible would call sin, contains within it its own punishment. And usually we're the last to see it. And here he was, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine, chaos. In that whole country, and he began to be in need. And if you're in the first century, the last place you want to be is with the pigs. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed, can you get the sense of desperation here? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This was total shame and dishonour. Because if you were from a Jewish background, the one thing you couldn't be around was pigs. And here he was, the pigs were getting better well fed. It seemed that in a famine in a foreign country, a pig is worth more than a foreigner. He had nothing and he was dying. Verse 17, 20 to 20, can we stick that up? When he came to his senses, I love that. I wonder whether you've had any of those, one of those, I think uh, you know, in addiction terms we talk about hitting rock bottom. Oh, he'd hit with a bank. He came to his senses, and I love this, because he looks at himself and he says, how did I get here? How did it go so wrong? What was wrong with my thinking that led me to get here? How could I have dishonoured my father so much? I really thought I was wise, but I've been proven to be a fool. And, of course, you and I know, and I hope this isn't happening to you at the moment, but it might be. You see this in society all the time, where people go on the run from God, and they pursue what they think will give them life, but rather than giving them life, takes it. Some of you heard of Johnny Cash. He he lived a a wild lifestyle musician. He said this, you know what I figured out about drugs and partying? You think you're taking it, but it ends up taking you. And that gets multiplied over countless, countless times. So often we think that if we just get that girl, we'll be satisfied. Or if we just get that guy, we will feel whole and completed. Or perhaps you find yourself just subtly buying into the lie that if you just have more of what you've already got, you'll be happy. And so you you get on the treadmill and you run a little bit harder and and happiness seems to elude you. It's just that one little bit, that one little step further. Perhaps some of you when you hear drinking and partying think that's not me because you know deep down you're too clever to go that way. You know that's self-destructive. But you do it a subtly different way. You don't put all your eggs in that one basket of approval and partying and wearing the right things and going the right places. You just have a just enough of that thing. Just enough of partying and just enough of the right kind of relationships and just enough sex and just enough relationships and just enough success and just enough respect to make you feel like you can make life work. But secretly, and you don't let people know, you know you live on the raggedy edge of it being just taken from you in a second. And that's why you stay up at night, and that's why you're stressed, and that's why some of you are taking medication. Because life is really so fragile, this life I try to build. And that's exactly where he is. But he comes to his senses, and he writes a speech. And as speeches go, it's not too bad, but it alludes to something, a bad place to go to. Let's look at this speech, verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Do you get that? He's going to eat humble pie. He knows he hasn't got a leg to stand on. He knows his dad doesn't even need him back because his dad's already got hired hands. But in this moment, there's just this little hint. This little hint of of trying to do penance. You know, sometimes when we get around church, we can feel that way. Sometimes when we get around Jesus who exposes how, how, how... how far short we fall of what our humanity should be, we sort of feel like we need to do something to pay it off. And he plans that, doesn't he? You know, I've lost count of the number of people from our community around here who who at one point or another, they've they've said that they sense something that they know they need need the Lord in their life. But they say, and I said, why don't you come along to church and hear the good news about Jesus, about how he loves you, draws you back, forgives your sins. And they come around and they say this, Steve, I just need to get my life together first. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? It's bonkers, isn't it? How's that been working for you so far? Not very well. What are your chances of success? Pretty unlikely. So you think that your best hope will be to put yourself together a bit before you come to God. That's nuts! But there's something within us that wants to be able to do that. There's something within us that wants to say, if I I sound sorry enough, or if I punish myself enough then god has to have me back no he doesn't what have you got what have you got in your life that he possibly needs does he need worship from he's got the angels does he need your money please he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the silver in every mind does he need your hard work of course he doesn't he's got a fleet of people he can do what he wants does he want your life it's like uh, he can take it any moment he chooses this is God. So the son is humble. And I'm really pleased because he doesn't blame shifts. He could have done. He could have blamed, I don't know, he could have blamed his circumstances. Oh, it would have gone fine except for the famine. He could have blamed the community. That stinking pig farmer. He could have blamed his, his, his family, that big brother, if he hadn't been so oppressive. He could have blamed his father and said, well, you gave me the money. If you hadn't given me the money, wouldn't have... he doesn't go there, which is good. And some of us attempted to blame all, all our faults on other people or God. He didn't go there. But he's got this mindset because he doesn't know the father he doesn't know that you don't get in with the father by trying to bring something to the table because there's nothing you can bring to the table that he needs can I tell you that's the same with God so he prepares his speech and he heads off verse 20 so he got up and went to the father great decision what's he going to find but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and his fowns. So the stage was set, and you can imagine the hired hands leaning on the fence, and they see this little toe rag walking back up, and they look at each other and go, this is going to be good. Fireworks, here we come. And there's the dad leaning on the face, uh, front, uh, front fence with a face like a chewed wasp, ready. And you can imagine he's just like getting ready, and he's like... I tell you what, he'd best have some things to say, oh, where's, get me my two by four, I'm going to sort this, is that what the father was doing? He was hanging on the fence looking, and when he sees this no good reprobate of a son, he doesn't tut, he doesn't say get lost, he picks up his garment which he would have had a long thing and he runs it's as if he'd been praying every day and longing every day for this son to come back and he doesn't hold i mean this shouldn't happen should it this is scandalous because all of you know and all of you are taught you don't if you don't eat your dinner you don't get your pudding you know that don't you you don't eat your dinner you don't get your pudding what's happening to this guy he grabs hold of his the son, the son starts to, and all the, the father hears is blah, blah, blah. I'm not interested in your best argument, your best excuse. Quick, ring, put it on him. Robe, put it round him. Meat, get it cooking. Get the music started, because me son who was dead and lost, he's home again. And we're going to celebrate. I told you there was a party here today. And the party is because... People have come home to the father and been accepted. But you mustn't miss this bit. This is too important to miss. He won't allow the son to try and bring any kind of restitution. He won't allow his son to bring any promises of a better him. Because that's not the basis of how everything's going to be put right. The father stands there and he says, I will carry the offense myself. And in that moment, and I hope you get this, this is the best part, in that moment you're understanding why every church has a cross. I say that because I can't find one on this building, but it's at the centre of everything we do, believe me. Every church has a cross. Why would you put an item of torture and execution as your big symbol? Because at the cross, the one who told this story, Jesus, the one who was, even as he was telling this crowd, was heading towards Jerusalem where he knew that though he had done nothing wrong, he would be treated as if he was the ultimate evil. He would be falsely accused and convicted and he would go to a cross. And the Bible tells us and Jesus tells us that when he went to that cross, he carried on himself the offence of every sin ...of all of his people, past, present and future. I don't need to hear excuses and I don't need to make sure that you've got the power to change. I'm going to put it right. So Sam and Diane and Becky and Amy and a whole stack of people here... ...came to a point in their life when they said, I know I don't deserve a place, I'm spiritually dead... I know there's nothing I can bring to the table that can have God have me back. But I know, I know that Jesus loved me so much that he himself, the offended one, would go to a cross, carry the offense. He would be excluded so I could be included. He would suffer death so I can know life. He would be shamed so I can be robed He would be put far away from God so that I could have the ring of God's authority put around my life. Have you got any sense of that's how much God likes to welcome people? Do you know the Bible tells us that God is a searching God. He is searching out for people who know they need him. He's prepared to let you go on the run until you hit rock bottom. I mean don't do that by the way. If you're listening to this and sensing, flipping heck I need this quick. I don't want to hit the rock bottom. He'll welcome you too. But he is a God who searches and then celebrates when people come back. Let me try and wrap up my, sto- uh, my my message today with a little bit of a story. For those of you who were around in the 80s, you might remember this. Uh, it was in 1987. Perhaps you'll remember the little baby Jessica, Jessica McClure. She's a tiny little eighteen year old, uh, eighteen month old, who was playing in her aunt's back garden in Texas. And her aunt had a well in the back garden. And it was, well, it was twice, it was 22 feet, which is about twice the height of this ceiling. But it was only that wide. And it was a pipe all the way down. And one day when she was playing in her aunt's garden, you've guessed it, she fell in and she fell right to the bottom. Nobody could fit down that pipe. She wasn't old enough to to grab a hold of anything at all. But when they heard it on the news, the whole community shut down. They just shops shut, businesses closed, people were there. People would report how they would come to the surrounding area and they'd better hear, hear little Jessica singing nursery rhymes to herself from the bottom of the pipe. I mean what happens to you in that moment when you when you hear of a little a little one who, who who's just in the depths and they're trapped, and there's nothing they can do to get out. No one could fit, forget, um, fit in, so they did the only thing that would make any sense, and they threw themselves into the task of digging. And they dug in the adjacent bit next to the pipe. Now, this is in the day before 24, uh, 24-hour news ever happened. Didn't happen back in the 80s, did it? Didn't arrive until satellite TV. So we're 10 years ahead of time or something like that, maybe five years ahead of time. But there was 24-hour news coverage of this and the cameras came and everybody was watching. Men would jump in, they would dig to the point of nearly passing out, get pulled out and the next one would go in. Day and night for three days they kept on digging and the nation watched. Would this person have any hope of being drawn out and coming home safe? Even President Reagan at the time got in on this and he said everyone in America became godmothers and godfathers to little Jessica. And so for three days they dug down, down, down and they prayed down, down, down and they got to the bottom and they dug a a shaft to try and make it safe to get across just there. And on the night of the 16th of October of 1987, a photographer was there. On a 24 foot ladder in the next door neighbor's garden. Overlooking and this is what he saw. There was dead silence so workers could communicate. At this most dangerous and difficult moment. As they tried to reach for Jessica. And then what I remember. Is the shouts of joy. As they pulled her up. And whisked her out. And on that day. A whole nation rejoiced. Grown men were weeping. Because one who was dead was made alive. One who was lost was found. One who was dirty and ruined was brought back to wholeness. Can I tell you that's what we're celebrating today. Maybe they've fallen down some holes, I don't know. But spiritually they were in a pit, as every human being is without Jesus. And he loved them enough to search them out and draw them near. What about your story? I tell you what he is prepared to do for them, he is prepared to do for you. I don't care what hole you've been in, I don't care how good you think you are. You all have the same need, we're united today. In the fact that we all fall short of the glory of God and the only one who can get us across that gap is Jesus. The only one who can secure our future is Jesus. And so in a minute we're going to hear of stories of people in different situations and different points of life who have have been searched out by the love of God and brought near. And that and that only is the reason that we celebrate. And with that in mind, I need Dan. Where is he? Where's Dan? Oh, is he gone? He's gone to get our musician and we're going to sing. But before we sing, we're going to pray. Now, I don't know whether you do this very often. Some of you here who are regulars do. But this is a time to do business with the true and living God. I don't know where you're up to in that story, but you're in there somewhere. And I'm going to say a prayer that will wrap all of us up in that before we stand and sing together. Can I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's do that now. Lord, we thank you that you are a searching God, that whether we're somebody who has rebelled by living at large or rebelled by trying to do all the good things as if we don't know you and don't need you. We pray, Lord, that you'd have mercy on our souls. We thank you that you're the God who, knowing the worst about us, loved us and sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to bear our offence. We thank you that all the condemnation that should have been ours fell on him. We thank you that there is hope, even for the worst of us. We thank you that you love us, Lord. And we want to join in putting our hope in him and celebrating here today. Thank you that you're a God of the party. Thank you that you've got a God who saves sinners. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.